If you have a Bible, uh, stand with me. Uh, We read the text. We stand when we read it, whenever we go through it. uh, And then we will um, uh, preach through it. But if you will, stand with me. We're in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We recite this actual text at the end of every service. And so likely, because we've been doing it for so long, you know it. uh, But we're still going to read it together. Uh, The text for today... Of all texts, you could never guess, right? If we're doing mission, today's mission, we're going to look at the Great Commission. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Actually, you know what? Uh, Let's read it together. Let's read it all all out loud together. It's not going to be me. Ready? Go. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. We will also be in John 5, so you can stick your thumb in John 5 if you want. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your kindness. Thank you for your word that you've given to us. I pray that we would um, have... Hearts and minds that would focus in on the text and Holy Spirit, you would come now and superintend these moments to teach us uh, through the power of your word, Lord, and the Holy Holy Spirit to um, see and understand your word. But more than that, Lord, that the good news of Jesus uh, would uh, seep into our entire minds and that uh, we would have a a gospel-centered lens and view as we would look at the scriptures, that we would be so thankful for what Christ has done for us, realizing that there's nothing on our part that we have to do in order to have a right standing, but it's all based on what you have done for us. And by that, we would joyfully want to live out this mission, that we would join you where you already are um, and seeking um, to make disciples in this city. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start out with a, uh, a quote which I think is a, a good uh, place to start our foundation. This comes from a book called Instruments in the Hands um, of God. But this is what it says. Your life, just to set us in a right mind frame, because it's easy in 2020, 21st century America, to get caught up in, you know, stuff going on in life. Your life is much bigger than a good job and an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens and nice vacations and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue far after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively changing them into his likeness. And... He wants you to be a part of it. That's pretty amazing. This great commission is something that God is doing. We're joining Jesus on mission, and he's doing it. He is calling people to himself, always. And we can easily get sidetracked into 21st century kind of contemporary issues, or we can, you know, while we live in the world, of course, be good citizens, but join what Christ is doing in this world. So joining Jesus on mission. Joining, meaning God is already at work and there is no such thing as finally mission can happen now that we're here. (laughs) That's crazy talk. 
It's already been happening, and we are simply joining with what he's doing. He's already working long before Remedy Church got started. And the key for us to ask is, where is Jesus at work right now in this city, and how can I join what he's doing? So joining Jesus. We're joining Jesus, and we shouldn't forget this, that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah. It's all for his glory and not for ours. Everything that he's calling us to do and join with him is all for his purposes and his glory. He's Jesus. He's God. He's in control, not us, but we can totally rest in that. We're joining Jesus. And lastly, we're joining Jesus on mission. Mission. And what is this mission? Jesus tells us what our mission is right before he left earth. He told us right there in Matthew chapter uh, 28, verses 18 through 20. So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to really fast look at Matthew 28, the kind of three little, three little points there, and then we'll jump over to John 5, and we're literally going to join Jesus on mission and watch him do mission in John chapter 5. So um, go where the mission is to go make disciples of all nations. If we read again, I want you to notice the alls. This pretty all-encompassing, this great commission, used four different times. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days, literally all the days when it says always, all the days to the end of the age. So four times here. It's an all-encompassing statement, and that's, that's with a lot of purpose. So you've got four different alls here. And it's the very last thing he, he says before he ascends into the heavens right before them. He tells them that all authority has been given to him. I mean, think to say one of the things is pretty important. And he's saying, this, all authority has been given to me. I want you to go make disciples. He has the authority to tell us that. He has the chops, if you will, to make this massive statement that we're supposed to go make disciples and I'm going to be with you. All authority has been given to me. Just consider that for a second. When we're joining Jesus on mission, Jesus, we're joining the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. And so this is a a pretty big deal. And he tells us right there in verse 19, all authority in heaven is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So if we're joining Jesus on mission, the first thing that we can see there is go. Go. He literally wants you to go. As you are going through life is kind of the, the, the way that most seminaries will try to tell you to translate this. Go or an as you're going, as in um, you're already going, you're already a sent one. And as you're walking around because you're already sent, you're not waiting to be sent. You're not in the airport waiting to get on the, on the plane. If you're a believer, you're on the plane. You're not sitting at the airport. You're literally on the plane and you're already sent. So as you're going through life, um, everywhere, he's telling us to go. So let's, let's concentrate on this going person uh, that we're being called and ask this initial question. Do you consider yourself, and I mean this in respect to the Great Commission, do you consider yourself a going person? If you think about yourself as a disciple of Christ that's been called to go, do you think, yeah, I would say I am a going person. In regard to the Great Commission, I am, I am one of those that, that's actually going and doing this work. Do you think of yourself as... Uh, someone who's already sent. Remember, John chapter 20, this is what Jesus says to us. Uh, in John chapter 20, verse 21, it's a very key text. He says, And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. Consider what he's saying here. 
as the Father has sent me. Just let all the weight of that, the idea from eternity past, the, the Father's plan always was to send Jesus. As the Father has sent me, the, the great incarnation where he was in heaven, receiving all the glory, and decided, as Philippians chapter 2 says, did not account equality of God something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, became in the likeness of man, and there he was. I mean, this is an amazing statement about thinking of the, the sentness of the Son, of the Father sending the Son. That's, that's, that's an enormous sending, Right? So keep going in this text, John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So in, in a much similar way as God the Father has, is sending the church to accomplish a mission, the, the, the weight of the sentness that the Father gives to the Son, Jesus has given to us. Now, it's similar in mission, but a little bit different, right? And that's just obvious, right? Um, this is what I mean. Similar in mission is like this, because um, Luke 5.32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's similar to us. We, we are doing the same thing. John, or Luke 19.10, he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's the, the way that the, the mission that the Father sent Jesus to do, to seek and save the lost, to call sinners to repentance. We as the church sent by Jesus are doing the same thing. Now, the difference, obviously, is the Father sent the Son to go to the cross also to die for the sins of the world. We're not doing that. That's not part of our, our sentness. Our part of our sentness is to point to what Jesus did for us. Say, the cross is why you can be righteous and, and repent of your sin. The cross is why uh, you can now be one of those people who are lost, but you're now saved. So that was Jesus' mission. And obviously, the, we have that same mission to go and call the righteous, uh, the, those who think they're righteous, to repent of their sin and come to know Christ. To go and seek and save the lost. Because Jesus is in heaven, um, and he's using us as we walk around and tell people, not using us in a, in a bad sense, obviously, in the most positive sense. He's called us to join him, what he's doing. The way that the mission happens primarily and ordinarily is normal people like us walking around and telling people about Jesus. If you hear stories of voices and callings and dreams, and this is not the standard normal way. And if that happens, those things are rare, and we should not take the rares and make them the standard. The standard is, as it says in Romans 10, for us to go, how beautiful are the feet that we go, and we preach the gospel to people, and God changes their hearts, and they get saved. And so, um, as he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it's through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And remember, the church, <laughs> it's not the building, right? It's the people. You and I, we are the church. His plan is the church. And let's be very specific. His plan for the Great Commission is the local church. It's the local church. Every single local church living out their sentness. Back to the question. Do you feel like you're a going person? Do you feel like you're a going person? Because what we've seen then because um, I don't want you to feel guilty here, I want you to feel more encouraged than defeated, is you are already sent. The question of do I feel like a going person is really um, me just messing with you, right? Because you already are. That's the truth. Whether you feel like a going person doesn't really matter because the truth is you already are sent. 
That's what he wants us to understand. Who are your neighbors? Because you're already sent around them. You're already living around them. You don't have to wonder, uh, am I sent or not? Should I go talk to my neighbor? You're already sent. Yes, you should talk to them. And Ephesians 2.10 says, he's already prepared good works. You just said you would walk in them. And so you're already around people. Don't think of the Great Commission that is written in a way that assumes that you have to completely kind of upend your schedule to finally go out of the way to start spreading the gospel. You can do that, and that's amazing if you want to. But that's not necessarily, I don't think, the way the Great Commission is written. Instead, it's written in a way that wants you to see that you're all people that you rub shoulders with. Go back to that initial quote. Your life is not about... your having a good, a fun job and an understanding spouse and not delinquent kids, it's while you're walking around day by day rubbing shoulders with the people in your job, the people in your store, the people in your neighborhood, the people in your school, the people in your dorm, the people in your house. You're supposed to be talking to them about Jesus every day because you're already sent. You're already doing this. You'll be talking about what it means to be forgiven forever by Jesus and to never be forsaken by Jesus. So, you are sent. You're already doing this. The church must go. And this is all rooted in the gospel. Here's what I mean. Matthew 27, verse 46. Jesus, very famously, we've probably heard this multiple, multiple times, uh, on the cross about the ninth hour. This is very close to the end of his uh, End of his crucifixion, Jesus screams out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're like, what is he talking about? This is a great commission sermon. Why is he quoting that? I'll show you why. Here's why. So in that moment, David, uh, Jesus is quoting David, um, Psalm 22. Spurgeon says uh, that what we can see here is that he is being deserted of his own God, the Father. This was the climax of Christ's grief. It's the climax of Christ's grief because he had always known, just think about it, from, in the Trinity, for, from eternity past forever, he had always known perfect fellowship with God the Father. Perfect fellowship. There had never been a moment where Jesus and the Father weren't like completely in perfect fellowship with each other. And if you've ever heard Piper kind of talk about Jonathan Edwards, this is literally, the love between them is so strong, it manifests itself out into a third person, the Holy Spirit. And that is how the Trinity works in together. That's a whole other thing. So here they are. And in that moment where darkness comes in, um, and he screams, Lama, Lama, um, Lama, the Sabachthane, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing wrath from God the Father, not love. Wrath because of our sin. God has a built up amount of wrath that he has to righteously put on to sin. And instead of putting it on us, he's putting it on his son. And he screams out this, um, this verse, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also in that moment, while he's feeling forsaken because this relationship, this perfect fellowship in some ways, in some ways he's, not, he's still God is being broken, he's also quoting intentionally Psalm 22. He's quoting intentionally Psalm 22 because he's wanting all those people there to say, you know the scriptures, you know Psalm 22, and what's happening before your face has been prophesied from Psalm 22. David wrote the psalm thousands of years, perfectly describing what Jesus was going through on the cross. So he's pointing us by looking through the scriptures and everyone there to Psalm 22 to help them see that in this moment, What's really happening is that Jesus is fulfilling Scripture, and Jesus really is the Messiah. 
He screamed this out. As it says, it, he, he cried out with a loud voice. This is for all to hear. This Greek word cry, it's the, it's the only place it's used in the New Testament. Uh, it's as though the English translators couldn't quite get themselves to write scream because of the thoughts of Jesus screaming in anguish is just too much for us. And so they say cry. R.C. Sproul says this is literally the scream of the damned. It's the crucifixion within the crucifixion, the full wrath of God being put on him. And this spiritual death was, that he's receiving um, uh, on, for us on our behalf is infinitely more painful than the physical pain that he had been feeling all the way up into this moment or that death could even give. This is a scream of the damned. And however, um, in some sense in this moment, Jesus experiences this kind of cutting off in favor and fellowship with God that he's always known fraternally. And because of our sin, we will never be forsaken by him because he was forsaken for us. What's the point, Fudd? Here's the point. On the cross, Jesus declares when he screams out, there's ultimate hope for all of you because I'm the Messiah. There's ultimate hope for you because I'm the Messiah. I am taking the wrath of God on me for you all and you all have hope. And here's the point. Because this was not a surprise for Jesus. None of this was a surprise. That's why he sweated drops of blood, as Luke tells us, in the garden before the cross. Here's my whole point. Because Jesus was willing to go to the cross, we should be willing to go to the ethne. Go. Are you a going people? You have to be a going people. Jesus, our Savior, our Master, go. Go. Next, make disciples. So going's good, but we need to know what we're doing when we're going. Go Make disciples. A Christian's primary job on earth is to make disciples. You may sell stuff. You may read stuff. I don't know what your job is. You have a lot of different jobs. All that's good. And you should do those jobs. Those are important jobs. You may lead people. Um, whatever your job is, that's, that's great. And you should do that because you take care of your family that way. And you, um, are, you have an opportunity to be around people because of you having that job. That's great. All that's important. The primary job of a Christian is to make disciples. The primary job of a Christian is to make disciples. Now, we're going to talk about what that means, but we need to make disciples. Verse 19 and 20 tell us exactly what it means to make disciples. And I, um, I believe this applies to both Christians and even non-Christians in a sense. We'll talk about what that means. Making disciples is characterized by the commands that follow. So if you see here, he tells us, in verse 18, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So when we say make disciples, here's why I say unbelievers, because that means believers need to be literally discipled, unbelievers need to be evangelized, and then discipled. So make disciples is not just a, an evangelism kind of, kind of uh, declaration, right? It's also uh, your children need to be evangelized, uh, but then they also need to be discipled. We're Southern Baptists, right? So Southern Baptists have been historically really good at evangelism and not so good at after you get saved, like discipling you in the faith. That shouldn't be the case because the command is not go therefore and evangelize. It's go therefore and make disciples. And so we need to make disciples of all nations. Make disciples means literally evangelizing them and discipling them. If you see someone come to Christ, 
You should spend time with them afterwards. Like if you lead them to Christ, walk through the book of John for the next year with them. Eventually, turn them over and tell them, hey, what we just did, go do that to somebody else. You know, 1 Timothy 2.2, the little four generations of discipleship. 2 Timothy 2.2. You can write that down if you don't know what I'm talking about. Just 2 Tim 2.2. Four generations of discipleship in there. But disciple them. So making disciples is literally evangelism and discipleship. But also, you can see it in here. Go therefore make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, Making a disciple is, uh, after you lead someone to Christ, helping them understand the, the necessity of a public profession of faith. They should publicly profess their faith because of all the obvious reasons. It causes them to live it out more. There's levels of accountability. The church knows and can rejoice with them about what the Lord has done for them. There's so many reasons, right? But they should be baptized. And because we're Southern Baptists, we believe that baptism comes after faith. Baptism, literally immersion, baptizo. You are immersed uh, after faith in Christ. Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then here it is again. Teaching them. Who's the them? This is not just the whole world. So this is all-encompassing. Remember, the whole thing's all-encompassing. This is not just believers, but unbelievers. Teaching them What? This is where we get good. This is teaching them. So here's where we want to make sure we don't make uh, errors in maturity. Because we can always think mature means you just know so much theology. Maturity means you probably will know theology. But maturity, or what we're going to hear, means that you obey Christ's commands. That you literally live a life of holiness. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the teaching primarily is moral and ethical, not uh, knowledge-based. We will, so when you, when you hang out with someone to teach them the book of John, it's not just that they learn the book of John. It's so that when they see what Christ says to do, we obey those things. Look what Jesus is telling me and you to do. We should do that. So when you walk people through Book studies or Bible, books of the Bible, when you teach them, we're not wanting them to just know tulip and reform theology and if we know where the dinosaurs came from. Like that, fine, we can learn knowledge. But the point in making a disciple is that they would observe or obey all that Christ has commanded. That the way that they live their life would be different. So making disciples, making disciples is evangelizing disciples them, getting them to do a public profession of faith, but also teaching them to obey, pursue holiness, the ongoing fight of faith. And again, make sure we understand that. It's all based on the gospel. So you don't get saved and then all of a sudden fight by your own work to, to be holy. That's not how it works, right? It's you get saved and because you've been completely justified, you continually write, remind yourself of the justification that's been given to you. Christ has declared me righteous. Um, Philippians 3.16, let me hold true to what I have already attained. I have been declared righteous, help me live righteous. So our fighting the fight of faith, sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, is all centered and rooted in the good news of Christ. It's not, now it's all up to you. It's never been that way. So the teaching here is not dogma that we tell people, though that will happen, that we have theory. Instead, it's primarily obedience to Christ. Spurgeon says, We are not to invent anything new nor to change anything to suit the current age, but to teach baptized believers and everyone 
to observe all the things whatsoever our divine king has commanded us. That's what we are to do. So the question, that's the task. Do you feel like you're making disciples? Calvin, old John, this is what he says. Or he's French, so Jean. Anyway, let us, let us learn from this passage. This is what he says regarding Matthew 28. Let us learn from this passage that the apostleship or being called a Christ follower is not an empty title. When you're a believer, it's not an empty title. It's important. But instead, a laborious office, an office that requires a lot of labor. And that consequently, nothing is more absurd or intolerable than that this honor should be claimed by hypocrites who live like kings at their ease and disdainfully throw themselves away from the teaching and preaching of the gospel. In other words, if you become a Christian and you don't actually preach and teach the gospel and tell people to believe, you're just a hypocrite because it's a laborious office. And you just say, did Fudd just call me a lazy hypocrite for not evangelizing? Actually, it was Calvin. It wasn't me. I'm just reading. That's all I'm doing. Um, But if you're not fulfilling the Great Commission, then you're not fulfilling the laborious office, which is a Christ follower, into which we were all called. It's, in, it's insane to think that God would call us to be saved and do nothing. Platt says it this way, David Platt, on the Great Commission. This is not a comfortable every for most Christians to come be baptized and sit in one location. It's a costly command for every Christian to go baptize and make disciples of all nations. Just notice that the Great Commission doesn't give us a category of believe it, but don't share it. That's the point. It's believe it, therefore I have to share it. I'm already sent now. So we must make disciples. Go make disciples. Of whom? Well, number three, of all nations. Now, you probably heard billions of times this Greek word nations. is not so much talking about, you know, outlines of actual countries and go into that particular country. And then make a disciple of that country. Um, This word is ethne, which is ethnicities. So it's more like everybody. And so inside of one country, there could be thousands of different ethne. And so we're supposed to go not just to make disciples of one country. Well, we covered all 178 in the world. Or what are we at? 180. We're good now. It's instead all 16,000 ethnic groups in this world are to be reached. Every ethnic group, as a matter of fact, Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel must be preached to all the ethne, and then the end will come. Presumably going to come back. How is an ethnic groups have heard the gospel and believed, then Christ is going to come back. Hallelujah. Come back, right? And so who is it that you're supposed to be called to? All the ethne. If you're in Christ, this is our objective. Spurgeon says this was their commission as well as ours. Now, interesting, we need to make sure we hear this because we can easily read this in a 21st century lens and miss what Jesus is saying. Up until the entire book of Matthew, if you remember, um, Matthew is written to people who are Jewish. We went, when we preached through the book of Matthew, 100 sermons or whatever it was many years ago, one of the things that we saw over and over and over, Matthew is written to Jews. Luke is written to Gentiles. Matthew is written to Jews. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over, he is quoting the Old Testament. And so here in the Great Commission, in the book of Matthew, Jesus, a Jew, is telling his Jewish disciples, I want you to go and I want you to tell this gospel to, not Jews, the whole ethne. He is opening up a whole new world to them. I mean, up until this point, it has always been 
preach the gospel to the house of Israel. And here, he is blowing their minds. Hey, this is not just for Jews. It's for everybody. Gentiles too. Go to all the ethne. So we don't want to miss what Jesus and Matthew is trying to help us tell those Jews. Evangelize. Go to the people that you don't know well, that you might be uncomfortable around, and tell them the gospel. Come on, right? That's awesome. That's pretty awesome. Go make disciples of the ethne. And this is clearly how we should be doing evangelism as well. Evangelism for us may look like people that look like us, but it also is always meant to go to people that don't just look like us. We have to turn our mind off to the possibility that we can only talk to people that are like us. He is calling us to all peoples, no matter how they look, think, act, or whether they have interests similar to us or not. We are to go to all people and preach the gospel. That's what the ethne is. We're joining Jesus on mission, and he is with us. Remember, as he tells us, I am with you always to the end of the age, which means whenever you're going to those people that you just have nothing in common with, the good news is Jesus is already there. You're not going to some place that Jesus isn't. He's already there. He's just kind of sitting here like over here like, come on, fun. I'm waiting on you. When I get here, he's like, I've been waiting on you a while. Here they are. I've already already worked in their heart. I've done stuff. Ephesians 2.10, just walk in it. Tell them the gospel, fun. Been waiting on you. Like, so we're not going to a place where Christ isn't there. And we're like, is this this safe over there? I don't know. It might not be safe. But he's already there. Matthew's. As D.A. Carson says, gospel ends with the expectation of continued mission and teaching. So we must be willing to go to all the ethnes, all the ethnic groups, and preach the gospel. This is what Christ has called us. So what are we going to do? Well, I want to take you to uh, one story. Um, Here we go. Um, We're literally going to join Jesus on mission right here. We're going to watch him, and there's just two main little points that I want you to see. But I want to watch Jesus and literally join him on mission and learn. Verse 1 of John chapter 5. Verse 1 of John chapter 5. Now there was the feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So Jesus went up, and the main idea is that when he goes to Jerusalem is that Jesus wants to deal with the people who are Jewish there. This is the overall message here, Um, not necessarily the man at the healing pool that we're going to see. He wants to deal with all the Jews that are there by dealing with the man at the healing pool. There's lots of Pharisees there that he really wants to have deeper kind of thought level conversations with them, and he's going to do it by concentrating his effort at this man so that they see what he's doing. Um, And he's going to deal with the Pharisees, and he's going to deal with this invalid. And you can see it has five roofed colonnades. Just kind of think of that as um, five huge big porches. So there's this, it goes to this place where there's five massive porches, and the, the porches have people on them. And it says, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. So just picture five huge porches filled with people with tons of problems. Blind, lame, paralyzed, just a whole bunch of uh, invalids. One, one guy was reading the Bible, he was a new Christian, and he called me up, Fud, why does Jesus keep calling this guy invalid? Where are you reading, John 5? He's calling him an invalid. He's not invalid, he's an invalid. Oh, okay. Don't tell anybody I said that. 
But, so anyway, um, it was really funny. Verse 4. Look at verse 4. I'm messing with you. There is no verse 4. So, um, so verse 4, it's not there. If you go down to the footnote, you can see. And then you see there, basically this verse 4 might not have been in the original text, but it talks about this little healing pool, right? And so I don't want to get into the fact whether the healing pool had magical powers or not. Really, that's irrelevant. But what we know is in verse 7, this man really thinks that the, that the pool has, has magic powers. That's all that really matters. It doesn't matter whether it did or not. Personally, I don't think it does. But the man thought it, right? The man in verse 7 thinks that this pool is going to heal me. So what we know right now is Jesus goes to the five roof colonnades and it says multitudes of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Just picture this, like five huge, like let's just say this room is one of those porches and it's just filled with people that are blind, lame, or invalid. And there's another one, another one. I mean, you can just walk up and you can just see need everywhere, right? There's so much need here, so much need. Verse 5, one man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So he had been there for a long time, probably his entire life, there at the pool, begging to eat um, all the time. More than likely, all hope was gone. Uh, All his hope of ever being healed was gone. 38 years to be an invalid, to have nothing. That's a long time to be in utter despair. This man likely was just completely and utterly hopeless in his own mind. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to them, do you want to be healed? Now, why does Jesus ask such an obvious question? Like, uh, I've been here 38 years. Of course I do. Like, why is Jesus kind of just mean-spirited and wanted to, you know, mess with him? I don't think that's it, obviously, at all, right? Um, He wants the Pharisees who are there to hear the question. He wants, because he wants to deal with the Pharisees. And he wants them to be like, what is Jesus going to do here? What's he doing? And he wants to increase the desire of the man to be healed and show him his, that in his deep misery, Jesus can deliver us from that kind of deep misery. Um, and this man thinks that the only way that he can be healed is by this water. And Jesus wants him to see that it's not by water. So says, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. So he believes that pool up. The first one in got healed, right? So it, if once it starts bubbling, they would all see, and there's a, I don't know if, I don't want to really call it a mad dash if they're all blind and lame and paralyzed, but there's, a, there's some kind of movement towards this pool, and first one in gets healed, right? And he's just kind of laying there, and every time it stirs, he's like, somebody pick me up and throw me in. Somebody get me in there, but no one ever does it. Somebody get it. No one ever does it. And so uh, he believes in verse 7, what's clear is, One way to be healed, pool, no one ever does it. I'm stuck. One way, that's it, pool. And he says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And so uh, this is what this man has believed the entire time. Um, No one's going to do it. I can't see the possibility of any other way to be healed except for this, because this is all my physical understanding has. Calvin, this diseased man um, does what most all of us do, is that we want to do, is that we have the limits of the assistance of God according to our own thoughts. And he does not venture to promise uh, himself to anything other than what he can only conceive in his mind. God only heals one way, and it's got to be this. And that's not how it is, right? God can heal in a ton of different ways, and this man doesn't realize it. And so, for us... Make sure you're not living your life that way, sitting at the pool, insisting that things can only go one way for you to finally 
like really have this life with God, he might have a whole separate way to wake us all up to fulfill the Great Commission or, or whatever it is that you feel like is, is going on. Another step before me. Everything I think is supposed to work uh, doesn't work. It never happens. And so water stirred up. I guess it's mayhem. Who knows what it's like? Uh, stirs up and he thinks of the five porches. I want to get in, but I'm not ever the first one in. And so what does Jesus do in verse 8? What does Jesus do? Blows this guy's mind. You're so limited. You're so limited. You think the only way you can be healed is, is this magic pool? Okay. Verse 8, look what he says. Um, Jesus said, get up. Take up your bed and walk. So what does Jesus do? Speaks to him and he gets up. He heals him with just his words. Because he's Jesus, right? He can do that. And he says, get up. And the way he did it's amazing, just by the word of his mouth. And he, Jesus doesn't even, um, the man didn't say yes, by the way. Do you want to be healed? Well, every time I try, he, he's so far gone, he doesn't even say yes. He just says, every time I try, it can't happen. And what does Jesus do? Heals him in the way that he doesn't think is going to happen. Which brings me kind of to, when we're joining Jesus on mission, and you're thinking about how can I be the most strategic uh, walking out of the Great Commission, of course, that means proclaiming the gospel, right? But sometimes people have such great need that if you just tell them to repent in Jesus, they're gonna either just going to say, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll pre- repent in Jesus if you'll give me some food, and they don't mean it. Or they're so hungry or they have such problems that needs to be adjusted or worked on or, or walked through with before they're ready to hear the message of the gospel. So Jesus' model, find their physical need, and you can say, I'll, I'll say meet it, strive. Strive to meet it. Everybody has needs, right? Everybody has some, some kind of physical need going on. And listen, this is not salvation. I just want to make sure, number one, does not save. Meeting someone's physical need and only doing that does not save them. It changes their life here on earth, but that's not the goal. But sometimes this is what we need to do. And by the way, I picked John 5. You could go to almost any story in the Gospels or even the book of Acts and find these and use these same two points that I'm going to use on this sermon in almost any story. He meets their physical need, and then you can already guess the second one, right? He tells them the Gospel. But find their physical need and meet it. Being an invalid this entire man's life, he had only known one way, and all he knew was that pool is going to heal me. He was so comfortable growing up or having excuses that he didn't even realize that God was speaking to him. Do you want to be healed? It was Jesus, and Jesus can do anything. And the only thing he knew was this pool. He had put God in a box so much that there was no concept of how anything could change other than this. And what does God do through Christ? Blows his mind. Get up. And what happens? At once. At once. He tells him, by the way, to walk. Do what you've never been able to do and always wanted to do. That's what God can do in your life. Do what you've always wanted to do but never been able. In the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what God does for you. What is it that you've always wanted to do? Be passionate to him, live for him, walk out his, his word, read the Bible every day. Do what you've always wanted to do but never been able to by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens here. And he tells him, In verse 9, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now 
That day was the Sabbath. That gets us back to the point that Jesus is trying to make, which is he wants the Pharisees to get all messed up in their head because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Um, And so this little kind of brief uh, time here up until verse 14 is just dealing with Pharisees and and, um, the Jews at the time. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, um, it is the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, the man who healed me, the man that said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they said, who's the man that said, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn and was there um, in, in a big, huge, crowded place. So let me just make one little note here because um, find their physical need and meet it. You can walk around Rock Hill and you can get just overwhelmed with need, right? Overwhelmed. Schools need help. Kids need help. Um, Crisis Pregnancy Center needs help. Um, your neighbors need help. You need help. Everybody, there's, there's need everywhere. And you can get so overwhelmed and say, I don't know where to start. Then I, I, I don't even, I feel bad if I help them by not helping them. And so I, the easiest thing is just not do anything so I don't feel bad. Don't miss this, okay? Five roofed colonnades of paralyzed people filled. And what does Jesus do? He goes up to one guy. He helps that one guy. There's nothing in the text that says, and he helped all the other colonnades, and then he left. And then he's going to meet with the guy afterwards, and that was it. Jesus left things there. I think just in principle, we can just take that and say, the Lord has put need everywhere, and you just need to go and start somewhere. Like, you're not called. Jesus could have just healed all five, right? Everybody's fine. Get up. But he didn't, right? He picked one, and he started somewhere, and that's what he did. Just do that. And just know that all the other people, <laughs> this is so freeing. All the other people you didn't help, God knows that, and God's going to take care of them another way. Or maybe later you'll be the person, but don't let the overwhelming need of Rock Hill overwhelm to where you can't even do anything. Go to that one place and serve in that one place and help in that one place and just know that God's got Rock Hill. And God's got not just Remedy, he's got all the other churches that love Christ and the gospel doing stuff as well. So back to verse 14. Don't miss this, okay? So it's really easy for us. It's very, 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 very easy to do number one. Here's your needs, man. Yeah, why'd you do that? Because of Jesus. He's so good to me and I want to help you. And just kind of leave it at that. And maybe that planted a seed. Maybe it did. A seed of what? That you're nice? So don't miss the very first word of verse 14. What does it say? Afterward, Jesus found him. Listen, there's always going to be an afterward for us. At, at some point, that just means this. At some point, once you've helped them, there's going to be the time to tell them about Jesus, right? When's the afterward? I don't know. It can happen pretty quickly. It can happen a while back. But um, at some point, the afterward's going to come, and you need to take advantage of it. Number two, tell them of their greatest need. So you help their physical need, but tell them of their greatest need, which is this spiritual sickness they have, which is forgiveness of sin through Jesus. This is what he does. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you're well. And here it is, sin no more. See, you're well. Sin no more. Think about that for a second. 38 years this man's been an invalid, laying on the ground, 
Exactly what could he, has he done? I mean, exactly what could he do that's sinning against people? Maybe yell at him with his mouth. That's about it, right? Maybe say things. And so we need to realize when Jesus tells him, sin no more, it's not lowercase s sins that has to be forgiven, right? It's uppercase s sin that has to be transformed in our life. We have to be, because we're born in the line of Adam, our fallen human nature needs to be made new. We don't just need to be forgiven of our sins. We need to be given a new nature. We need our human nature to be changed. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 calls us new creations. And so we need to be forgiven and ask for forgiveness of our um, fallenness. That's what Christ came to restore. And so when he says, sin no more, he's telling him that you need to uh, have forgiveness given to you in a way that's not just the small things that you've done, but your entire life has to be transformed by the gospel. And notice what this is even more interesting, right? Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see your well, sin no more. Here it is, that nothing worse may happen to you. What could be worse than laying on the ground for 38 years and that's been your whole life? Hell. Hell's what's worse. Hell's what wor- is what's worse. You need to be forgiven of your sin. This is where I tell them of their greatest need of forgiveness of sin through Jesus. And that's what Christ does. They need to be forgiven of their sin. And so whatever help you give to someone, whenever you meet their physical need, there is something worse waiting for them if you don't tell them about, the, about Christ, which is hell. Like this, if we only do point number one of their greatest physical need and don't tell them how to be saved, then we've just made them comfortable until they burn in hell forever. It would be like this, putting someone on a train or a bus and it's loaded with all the comforts that anybody ever needs. And you put them on this train or bus and you know that two miles down the track or the road, it's going to wreck and everyone's going to die but you load them up with every single comfort that they need and make them awesome for two miles and don't tell them about what's going to happen in two miles. Man, you're so good. I hope this this ride's awesome. And you don't tell them. That's what it's like. We have to tell them of their greatest need. And meeting their physical needs usually, usually not always, makes them receptible to be able to tell them of what their greatest need is, which is Christ. And so, um, perhaps we're like the Pharisees where we have a lot of information about Jesus, uh, but we don't have a love for Jesus and a heart for Jesus that wants us to join him on mission. Perhaps we're like the paralyzed man and spiritually we're paralyzed and we're not going anywhere, but we're sitting in expectation for God to move in a certain way that we can finally start doing the Great Commission. And God's been saying, I've got this other way, just get up and start going. It's time to... Live as you're already sent. Perhaps you're like um, him and you focus on something else and not on Jesus. And the only way that you can have real life to live out the Great Commission is by focusing on Christ and seeing what he does in your life. Um, God has called us to join him on mission. Whatever moment you got saved, whatever age that was, go up to about 80. And that's how long you have to do evangelism. That's it. There's no evangelism in heaven. 
everybody saved. This is our only opportunity that we have. After that, eternal worship. But missions exists because worship doesn't. Quoting Piper, that's not my own. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Right now, there are people that aren't worshipers that need to be worshipers. And we are on mission so that they will become worshipers. This is our only chance for evangelism. Christ is already moving and he has all authority. And he's with us all the days. So let's take up this task and join him on mission and see what he will do through us in this city and in this state and in this country and in this world. Let's pray. God, thank you so much only because of Thank you that the foundation of this calling is only because of, primarily because of the good news of Jesus. You have saved us. You have rescued us. You have redeemed us. You have called us. You have forgiven us. You have justified us. You have made us sons and daughters. You have brought us into your family. You have called us your bride, your church, and you have sent us on mission. What a glorious, amazing gift you have given us. And you would place the Great Commission in the lap of the church and say, go make disciples. And this isn't a a scary task. This is a joy. This is a joy. Our Messiah has allowed us to be a part of the greatest thing happening in the entire world. Lord, I pray that we take up the task joyfully. We pray this all in Jesus' name.